Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. Welcome back. If you're a regular listener, if you're new, um, what you're going to get is us shooting the breeze about a topic of John's choosing today. Um, regarding, and John is wearing a sweatshirt that says Army on it. So I think he's giving us a little bit of a clue as to what he wants to talk about. The direction um, this conversation is going to head. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> so... so um, uh, John, uh, how are you, first of all, um, the other side of the pond and all that? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Al? I'm good. Have your clocks gone back? Not yet. Gone f- yeah. What happened? No, they'll no, go okay. back uh, this weekend, I think. Right, okay. It's confusing. Uh, John, you're about to head, head over to Europe, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually about to go to the to do the Normandy Send tour uh, with the World War oh, II wow. Museum. So we, mm-hmm. we do half that so, on uh, yeah. the, the Joie de Vivre riverboat. You know, along the Seine, and then half of it in Normandy at the Chenevier. Ah, right. Yeah, it's a blast. I mean, there's always kind of favoured places to go to in Normandy. I mean, where do you always like to kind of doff your cap to? You know, I'll tell you what. Because um, I remember meeting you in Bayeux, didn't we? We had a yeah. That we time. met in Bayeux. That was that was a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, we we yeah. nestled into this this little coffee shop or something that's right and uh we we jabbered on about omaha beach which of course yeah, once you yeah, wind yeah. me up with that you'll never shut me up i mean obviously as you <laughs> found out <laughs> um but you know you know what what is one of my favorite places in normandy is abbe d'arden yes yes that yes, yes. Is a, that is a haunting place and just it the really whole, is just knowing a little bit about what went on there yes and you can picture panza mayor can't you on his little uh, on the kind of turret it is a an old monastery and and it's got all that you would expect from from a sort of a medieval french uh, monastery with the outbuildings and the halls and obviously the kind of the main church itself you know that's where the 12th ss arrived kind of um it, it were arriving overnight and where the where the headquarters of of panza mayor's regiment Said, okay, this can be our headquarters because I can get up into that tower. And from there, I can look pretty much all the way back down to the sea. Absolutely, so I've got a great vantage point, and I can sort of control my battle. And he's still looking at it. And of course, you can't see the folds in the ground from there, but what you can see at that part of of Normandy, just to the west, and it's and and the the, the Abbe Dardenne is is for those who don't know it, it's it's just north of Carpiquet, which in turn is is kind of southwest of the city of Caen. So it's on that kind of western side. And it does command incredible views from up from up there at the top oh, of the tower. It does. It's beautiful. Oh, there's a photo of it, him, isn't there? There's a photo of Panzer there, there with There's his, a photo with of him there, and it, just the whole vistas of it, uh, the terrain around there, you can see for miles and miles and miles, and you can see how challenging that would be um, from an attacker standpoint, uh, trying to move anybody or anything 
without being seen, especially by 12th SS, which has set up this kind of nerve center there and what had been a very venerable place. And of course, what happens there ultimately, tragically, you know, the, the execution of POWs by the SS and this blood feud that then ensues between Canadian 3rd Division and, uh, and 12th SS Panzer. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking of other places that offer great views like that. It's the, the, the hills overlooking Mortain as well. Oh, um, yeah. Mortain yes. and in, in, the, in the west of the, the west, towards the western end. Um, I remember interviewing a guy who'd been calling fire missions in from, from on top of the hill. Was that Robert Weiss? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. He, he was amazing. Absolutely yeah, amazing. He, oh, I don't know him. Tell me about him. An incredible book called Fire Mission. Yeah. And he, he told us all about being up on that hill and because you've got the Roman roads and seeing the panzers come up the come up those up the roads towards Mortown and the view down onto it and what and he you know he described watching the counterattack going in and the battery fire going in and basically basically stopping this offensive in its tracks and he was such an amazing man and an incredible guy really tall and sort of uh, powerful looking man you know a very like, dignified uh, guy he you know yes, yes. he's an interesting dude you know i mean he's all of 21 years old he's almost brand new to combat he's this he's this upwardly mobile guy from valparaiso indiana the son of immigrants from hungary hungarian jews actually and and he calls in 193 fire missions in a 6 day period one every 45 minutes um, it's just, it, and you know, they, they keep, they, they put their batteries out in the sun, the radio batteries in the sun to keep them going. Uh, it, it's really quite a story. And, and I mean, tell right, me, tell it's me. like, you can see everything up there. You can see all the way to Mont Saint-Michel on some days. Yeah, you absolutely can. You can on a good day, can't you? What? So, so as a Ford observer, a, a foo, as, as we would call it in the kind of in the, in the, in, in the UK. Al, you and I had that day on Salisbury Plain, didn't didn't you? Didn't we? Where we were kind of, you know, we were kind of forward observers and we were directing fire, and it was and it was fascinating. But what's he doing? What's the process for this guy, mm-hmm. or for, yeah, for any so, forward forward observation officer? How, how does so, it actually work? He's he's on his setup. He's got a radio, presumably. Yeah, they have sophisticated radio equipment, which they're moving in a jeep, and it's a pain in the rear to manipulate. So he's that he's got that because it's he's heavy. Got a, they're like, heavy these things, aren't it's they? It's really heavy. Uh, he's got a binoscope, you know, in which he's he's uh, sighting. Once they're, I mean, he might just use binoculars, portable binoculars, but in this case, a three one four. He's using the fixed equipment. He's got a three man team that works with him. Um, now he's a member of an artillery battalion. They're in the thirtieth Infantry Division, so. In the typical U.S. setup uh, by that time in World War II, you got four artillery battalions, three of which are 105s, and one is a 155. And so what they do is they they uh, the batteries parcel out, uh, you know, one forward observation officer with his team with infantry units typically. And I, I always argue that that is really that should be your number one target in combat is that guy because he's controlling the real destructive firepower. And I think the the example of Weiss is is prime. You know, but but, but is he is he doing guesstimates? I mean, say you know he's up on the hill, column is coming towards you. What is it? Kind of a mile and a half away, two miles away, something like that. Roughly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay, so two miles away. So he's he's saying bring it down on this on this grid point on a map. Is it? Yeah, he's he's exactly. He's kind of guesstimating. You don't have you know like the Q thirty six radar like you're going to have in the twenty first century, but you've got uh, you have some pretty sophisticated um, computer style equipment, and by computer I mean these tables and grids and and of course the radio equipment i mean it's more sophisticated than it ever been but it, but there's guesstimating 
And Weiss happens to be very good at this. Just judging distance and judging and- distance, knowing the terrain, uh, pre-sighting fires. But also, I should say, I mean, they, in that instance, they took over for the 1st Infantry Division. They were kind of relief in place. So he's getting the coordinates. They had pre-sighted all the coordinates like you would when you're just in a fixed position. So he's got all that to draw from, and then he can see it actually whether it really works. But just, but John, the, just, to, just explain, for those who don't know, explain, explain what that means, pre-sighting the coordinates. Yeah, so um, if you're looking at those roads we were talking about, and you can imagine enemy vehicles moving on those roads. Because you still need your arteries, right? You know, you're, you're, you're canalized absolutely. by the roads. Yeah. We're talking about um, Operation Lutich, aren't we? Which yeah. is the gambling Mortain offensive that, Hitler's decided he's going to destabilize the Allied effort, blah, and so on. But I mean, if you look at, if you put Mortain in, if you if you put put it into Google Google Maps, you'll see the view from the hills. There's basically a plain down below you, north of you, with Avranche over to uh, on your left, over to the over to the west, and the whole thing laid out like a billiard table in front of you. Yeah, and, um, right. I, I'm, it's extraordinary, and so so. Clearly, they had pre-sighted stuff. They, you know, so you've got that crossroads is crossroads A, crossroads B is another one, and and the the guns the guns. But the pre-sighting bit is is say there's a crossroads kind of you know half a mile from where you are on the top of the hill by that little kind of there's that little chapel, isn't there? And then you climb yes. up the little steps, and there it all is. Um, and, yeah. and you absolutely can see forever, and you can see Mont, Mont Saint Michel and all the rest of it on a on a clear day behind you. But say you're looking forward to where Lutich is coming forward, and, and and you can see on your map there's a crossroads. What you mean by pre-working out, you know, pre-aligning the coordinates is you've you've identified that crossroad as a potential kind of point to hit. Exactly. Yeah. And you've worked out the coordinate that it's eight seven two nine four one on the map. You know, that's your 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 ninety four mm-hmm. one way, eighty four the other, and then dividing that square in tens both ways. And back at the batteries, they've already got that info. The batteries were about what three miles to the west, something like that. Yeah. So they know that already. So if you say crossroads, you know, eight, four, nine, nine, two. Well, or crossroads able, even, you know, and they all know that right. it's that one. It's, I mean, it's like what the Germans did in um, when they're defending, uh, uh, fighting the Canadians in, in Holland when it's all flooded. Is the back reverse roofs of the houses had numbers on them. So that they, they painted numbers on the reverse roofs so that you, you knew they're, they're going for house two and you knew where to concentrate your right. machine gun fire. You know, it's, 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 simp- it's simplifying the fire missions. I mean, what Weiss was amazing, though, because he was up there six days. He said they ran out of water. The Germans had obviously tumbled that this piece of high ground was an excellent spotting place and they were being, they were being attacked themselves. I think he remembered, I remember him saying that the problem with the Jeep and all the kit was digging it in. Exactly. And so it's vulnerable. I think the Jeep was destroyed. You know, the, you've got the issue of the, the if you... You know, you need your aerial up for the radio to work properly, which is obviously gives away where you are and all that, and all that, all that, yeah, all yeah. those things going on at once. And they were up there on their own, you know, if, if yeah. effectively in the German rear for a bit um, at the full extension of, of Lutich. Yeah, he was an amazing man. He really he was, was. Quite, quite extraordinary. And it, yeah. yeah, and they go in yeah. with, you know, two K ration meals a piece or something. Yeah, uh, you know, that's so right. They're digging up rutabagas and other raw vegetables from farms nearby as this thing unfolds. The other thing, too, that ultimately is quite tragic that happens with Weiss, on the last day before they're, uh, you know, eventually relieved as the Germans are push, pushed east, um, you know, a, a, a shell comes in and badly wounds um, Sergeant Korn, uh, who was Weiss's second second in command. Um, 
and kind of key guy. And in a normal circumstance, uh, you know, the golden hour, you know, how you get to somebody quickly and you can save their lives. Well, he's just kind of bleeding out and they can't do anything for him. Uh, and, you know, this plays out that morning. This is, I think, August 12th, 1944. Right. And then, you know, it's not. And he's gone after- by the afternoon. And he's gone. And of course, this was, you can imagine how difficult that was for Weiss. Well, I remember him breaking down when he was talking about on, on camera, like being incredibly, still incredibly upset by it. You know, and that was 60 years later. That was in 2004 when we made that. It affected him profoundly. His book, it was terrific, though. It's very, very gripping, very gripping read. It's, 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 it's called Fire Mission, The Siege at Mortain, in Normandy, August 1944. It's, um, it's a heck of a thing. And the view, the view you get from there, having him standing there explaining that to us, uh, uh, was was quite extraordinary. I'm not surprised um, he broke down, though. I mean, it must be incredibly emotional to go back to these places. You know, these places where you've where you've witnessed so much, um, so much drama, so much trauma, and then to be back on the same spot. And and you know, there's always that thing, isn't there? That you know, if it can be peaceful now, why did it ever have to not be? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm a big fan of the then and now. You know, sort of being able to. Oh Because yeah. I think sometimes you know, landscape does change an awful lot and incredibly quickly. Um, particularly when it's built upon. And, and you know, if you go around Anzio now, there's kind of almost nothing left at all. I mean, you can just about get into the waddies, that's about it. But, I mean, you know, try and go anywhere else, you know, the factory, Cisterna, forget it. I mean, it's just, you know, the underpass, the overpass, all that kind of stuff. You know, all these places have just been consumed by building and light industry and and and, and it's just, it's sort of gone. Um, it's gone forever, particularly when you look at the photographs and you see what a kind of sort of a, a totally kind of deserted landscape it was. And of course, the reason it was deserted was because it's only just been, um, you know, it used to be a kind of sort of impenetrable marshland and it's only just been kind of reclaimed in the 1930s. So it's all brand new anyway. So it's not surprising, it's different. So then and now is great because it's lovely when you can go to places where they are recognizably one and the same place and you can match it up and you think, God, I'm in exactly the same spot. And just below Mortan is the is that amazing um, now disused railway station. And there's, a, there's plenty of photographs of this avenue of plane trees leading up to this railway station. And you can see all these sort of shot up um, German vehicles and half tracks and Kubelwagens and, and, and what have you. And you can line up that picture, and it's absolutely one and the same. It's just amazing. Wow. And that's that's also very moving, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, it allows you to sort of experience it in your own way. Those of us who weren't there, seeing it then and now, and as if it's not that different, then you do feel like you have a sense of this. Yeah. Uh, absolutely yeah. right so what were we going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> we've just done a classic well you know we? i'll tell that's you what it's, <laughs> it's funny because weiss is an example of what right. we're talking about because this is a guy who may not ever have ended up in in the armed forces you know and yet he becomes part of this kind of mobilized american military machine he goes to college i think at age 16 or something like that um so obviously he's sort of officer material on on that end of the scale uh, there are millions and millions of others who don't have that advantage. In fact, only, you know, 40 percent of those who served in the American Armed Forces had a high school diploma, believe it or not, in World War Two. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So but he, but he's an example of how, you know, here are these civilians who become very proficient soldiers within a reasonable amount of time, you know, because as of four years before that, 
you know, you have a, you have an army the size of Romania's yeah. army. 17th, 17th largest army in the world, isn't it? As of 1939 and 40. Yeah. 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 It's just, which it's sometimes hard to convey this because you've got, you've got to step away from the, the impression we have of the US military now, of it being, you know, capable of, capable of sort of global interdiction basically anywhere, um, anywhere, anywhere it fancies. I mean, it's, it's, it's it is truly extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you just got to forget all you got to forget all about B fifty twos that can turn up anywhere you like. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> what it is. I mean, it's the the uh, the sort of sustained permanence of that in our lifetime. Yeah. you know that. Yes. And so, what had happened in U.S. history? You'd had two previous times when the country had built a massive military machine, the Civil War and World War One, but then it just like yeah. dismantled it. It's like, okay, it's over. It's over and we want nothing. So like the Civil War Army, you know, uh, on the Union side is, you know, 1.6, 1.7 million or something. And then within uh, the by the late 1860s, you're down to about 26,000 soldiers or something crazy like that. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's kind of the same sort of phenomenon after World War One, you know, between four and five million serve in World War One. And yet, of course, by 1939, as we said, you're 17th behind Romania in terms of sheer military size. So you talk about a serious underachiever, but it's by yeah. choice, um, because you know, because all the the political aspects of this. So, so for the yeah. for those who, for those who don't know, what what happens? How 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 do we get from 17th to I don't know? I suppose second after the Soviet Union by the by the by the end of the Second World War. How did how on earth did I that actually happen? had it I always had it thought it was worse than that. I thought it was nineteenth sandwich between Uruguay and Portugal, but but No, I think know. it was right well, behind I mean, Romania, but it's but it's just it's still fairly the, pathetic. The point is, I mean it's very small. It's a hundred and eighty nine thousand or something, isn't it, in nineteen thirty nine? It is, but, but the, the good news is what what has been preserved is a cadre of really dedicated professional soldiers. Um, and, and, and not just in the army, but also in the Navy too. Uh, professional folks who have stuck with it in a 20 year period that wasn't very good career wise. Um, but you know, the, the Eisenhower's, the Bradley's, the Patton's, the Eichelberger's, um, the Marshall's, you know, they have stuck with it. So you have now uh, an army and a Navy that has enough military professionals to build into a real professional first class citizen army or Navy, but not so much that it's racked by careerism. So you end up with that yeah. kind of sweet spot. So what happens societally, of course, is a kind of a wake-up call. Um, you'd already had, believe it or not, in 1936, a commitment, a sort of quasi-commitment by the Congress to build um, the beginnings of a two-ocean Navy. You know, So, so you, you have at least some foundation for that, but obviously it's the, the war situation in 1940 that is just the complete game-changer in the U.S., um, especially the fall of France, but 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 Roosevelt's effort predates um, that, doesn't it? So he at the st- in the start of September in thirty nine, Marshall's made chief of staff, and they and they right then and there say right, okay, we're going to have to we're going to have to get an army up on its feet, aren't we? And the Secretary of State for Defense isn't interested, is it, 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 you know, that, so they're sort of having to do it. But 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 actually, the, the, it, it starts even earlier than that because because he's already trying to trying to get the uh, neutrality acts reversed. And the neutrality, oh, yeah. And, and you know, and he partly does in the summer of 1939, and then t- takes him a further level in the in the well, I think it's November, isn't it? 39, he gets a sort of second with the cash and carry. Him. Yeah, I mean, Roosevelt never liked the neutrality acts, but he had to bend to the political realities, and you know, they're passed from 1935 to 37, 
typically. But there's such a it's such an interesting. We should dynamic explain what there. the neutrality acts are, though. We should we should explain what they are. Yeah. So what here's the the background of that. Um, you'd had like around 1935 Senate hearings, uh, and what's interesting in the dynamic of this is that. Uh, the, the key figure in these hearings is a guy named Gerald Nye, who was a Republican in a heavily Democratic dominated Senate. Uh, and they are the hearings are all about the dirty laundry of U.S. entry into World War One, all the, the sort of economics and the, the, the bankers with loans to the allies and all this kind of stuff about how, you know, we had sort of fought for the bottom line of Wall Street at a time when Wall Street is really unpopular during the Depression. And the idea that we had just fought for, uh, you know, to, to further the British Empire or the Japanese Empire, all this kind of stuff. And so this disillusionment sets in that ultimately leads Congress to want to take action to say, let's make sure this never happens again. So to boil the Neutrality Acts down, it's basically Americans are prohibited from sailing on the, uh, the ships of nations at war. And um, that you're not going to have any more loans to nations at war, no arms sales, that if they want to buy anything, they have to pay immediately up front, no problem. Although and, uh, um, American finance is still very active in Europe and, and the rest of the world. So you've withdrawn militarily. The US has withdrawn militarily from the world. Oh, yeah. But in terms of, because, you know, this is the argument about American finance in Germany being a big, big part of the, the sort of Germany's problem as it manifests itself. The DAWs plan. So, so you've. Exactly. So you've got exactly with the doors plan. So you've got this sort of this sort of two handed thing going on. Um, does it? I mean, does some of it border on conspiracy theory about wicked bankers and, and <laughs> it does that sort of stuff? Oh, absolutely, right. it yeah. does. It absolutely does. It's the good old American game of conspiracy and disillusionment. I mean, a, a 1937 yeah. Gallup poll revealed that 70 percent of the public felt involvement in World War One had been a mistake. 70 percent. That's a that's a huge wow. majority in the U.S., such yeah. a fractious yeah. country. And, you yeah. know, and we'd lost. 110,000, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot from a British perspective, and I get that, but the thing to remember is almost all these lives are lost in about a nine-month period. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. that 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 leaves a mark, um, yeah. especially when it's not for your own soil. You know, it's not happening just across the English Channel where you're like, hey, you know, this is important to us. It's somewhere overseas. Yeah. So the U.S., the U.S., I think, in my opinion, had kind of abrogated and and almost kind of betrayed uh, uh, its allies from World War One because there was supposed to be a mutual defense pact with Britain and France yep. that the U.S. Yep. basically decides, no, we're not doing that. So both these countries then had to kind of, you know, improvise in the next 20 years in relation to their security because they had hoped that the U.S. would be part of their security system in the way you're going to have after World War Two when you have NATO. Because then, you know, things then things have changed. But um, so all of that had sort of set these events in motion, you know, that lead to the neutrality acts and this sort of disengagement. But the interesting thing, too, from a U.S. perspective, there's disengagement from Europe, but we're still really involved the way we always had been in the Western Hemisphere. Um, right. You know, we're involved in Nicaragua and Honduras and, of course, in China, you know, beyond the Western Hemisphere and all that, too. So we were picking our spots in a way. There was still plenty of dollar diplomacy going on, uh, but just not in relation to Europe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the British Foreign Office policy um, is, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is not to antagonize America because America is actually the, the one power with maritime power to interfere with the um, running of the British Empire. And that they get very hung up on that at one point, that, that the last thing we can do is is... Whatever we do, we have to keep America on side one way or another. So the idea that America's drifted away from that ideal um, it, 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 it is causing a lot of uncertainty, you know, which is why, in the end, Churchill is so 
so desperate to get America on side because he because he he because you know part of the thinking is what threat does America constitute to the, to the empire as much as <laughs> how useful an ally would it be you know and its absence as an ally constitutes a threat which is which is the, how the how the thinking's going in the interwar years which I think which, which which illustrates sort of a British understanding of American potential power in the long run, but, but but perhaps not an appreciation of American internal politics. Well, yeah, I mean, Roosevelt gets to power in 1932 on an isolationist ticket. And, and, and then there's this, as you're saying, this this whole thing about big business and um, being, you know, having blood on their hands and all the rest of it. And that's when you get the Vincent Trammell Act. In, and that's one of the biggest headaches um, trying to unpick this because the Vincent Trammell Act basically means if anyone wants to... Wants to um, I don't know, do a prototype of a new tank, for example. They've got to do it out of their own money, and they're not going to be paid back for sixteen years, if even if it's commissioned. You know, and this is this is yeah. a major problem because why would anyone? Yeah, so, yeah why, why would anyone do? Why would that? It, yeah, why exactly. would anyone do it? <laughs> right, but but, <laughs> but 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 that is precisely to stop it. You know, and there's, there's so so all these companies like Dupont, you know, really famous famous companies. They're no longer making TNT or explosives in the US because, you know, they've, they've been shouted down and it's, it's seen as aggressive and warmongering and all the rest of it. So they just don't do it. So there's, there's no one really producing explosive apart from just a little bit of engineering explosive in the US in 1939 or 1940, early part of 1940. And you've got the Vincent Trammell Act, which is all part of the kind of Nye Committee recommendations, isn't it? I think yeah. I'm right in saying that. And yeah. so this Vincent Trammell Act is, is, is an absolute nightmare because you, you've got to unpick that. Before you can start doing getting big business involved, and 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 what Roosevelt yeah, is being do. told by his what's it called the the War Defense Advisory Body or whatever it's called I can't remember um, that, that that he sets up with these dollar a year men you know this is Stetness and 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 Bill Nudson and people like that um, and Nelson as well um, Donald Nelson yeah Donald Nelson of course but mm-hmm. but these guys are all going well what you need to do is you need to harness big business and the problem is is how do you harness big business? Because there's still this kind of mistrust in in kind of you know wider oh, wider time. politics in the corridors of Washington, but also in the wider public. And you've got this this legislation which prevents you from doing that. All of that has to be unpicked before they're in any position to do anything about it. Yeah, and it, it all eventuates, I, I think, from this or stems from this disillusionment, this kind of this bitterness over involvement in the war. And determination never to have it happen again. I mean, that's the thing. Right. It's right. It's really quite striking when you look at a lot of the uh, political discourse and some of the, the the kind of popular media in the mid to late '30s. How adamant many people are that they're never going to get involved in a foreign war, especially in Europe, uh, and especially among young people. And you'll see too some of the older generation preening on about how young people today aren't tough. They won't fight. This generation isn't going to fight. And it, it is so funny when we look at it now, we're like, now we call them yeah. the greatest generation. Um, yeah. So here, here's a classic example. And th- this is the one that, <laughs> that is just so mind blowing. Uh, at Princeton University in the late 1930s, there was a kind of sardonic kind of poke fun at, uh, at war related thinking and internationalism movement called the Veterans of Future Wars. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys yeah, have heard yeah, of this. Yeah. So it's such an interesting. Thing <laughs> it is. is. Yeah. So you'd had the bonus marchers, you know, quite tragically, you know, during the depression, these were military veterans who wanted an advance on the benefits the the government uh, really did owe them, and of course that had gotten very ugly, you know, during uh, the end of the Hoover administration and so on and so forth. So these guys, these college students, 
uh, in this parody, they're saying, hey, I guess we're going to be in future wars anyway, and we're going to get killed. So why not enjoy our benefits now? So please give us our benefits as veterans of future wars. And they thought it was just a lark. Well, they get all these contributions, thousands and thousands of dollars from people all over the country. And they didn't know what to do with it. They had to stand up this new committee and create a whole organizational structure. Um, they got all sorts of media coverage that they never expected. And, and again, this is the so-called greatest generation or whatever. But that's the mindset at that point. Yeah, that's Absolutely. amazing. Mate, amazing. Yeah. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back for more. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, uh, James Holland and John McManus. Now, John, obviously there's an election to fight in 1940 as well. Whilst trying to assemble an army in the wake of the strategic earthquake in May, May, June 1940 in Europe, and also an eye to what might be happening in the Far East, are these things that happen in the summer of 1940 enough to convince uh, American public opinion that America needs to sort of reboot its military or, it, it, you know, as you go into the election at the end of the year, Roosevelt's still having to play to <laughs> wear two hats, isn't he? He's still mm -hmm. having to say, say to the to the people like Marshall, don't worry, we'll get this army on its feet and we'll 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 end up con conscripting people in the end. And then he's also having to play the politics for an election of we're not going to get involved in a war. So yep. how on earth does he do that? Yeah, what, I mean, what the hell's going on? I it's hate incredible. to be cynical, but he out and out lies. I mean, he in in the <laughs> in the campaign in 1940, he, he basically says, I, I will not send your boys off to fight in any foreign wars. Um, and I, in, uh, it's funny because in my uh, US now. military history class, 
I, um, I I say, you know, it's kind of ironic because Wilson runs in 1916 on the plank. He kept us out of the war. Six months later, we're in the war. Roosevelt in 1940 says, uh, you know, I'm not getting involved in any foreign wars. And of course, we all know what happens next. And then Johnson in uh, 1964, when he's running for election, says, I'm not sending your boys eight or 10,000 miles away to, you know, do what Asian boys ought to be doing. And of course, presto, we're, we're in the war with escalation very much the next year. So um, what's happened in 1940 is obviously, you know, the tectonic shift of France going down and Britain under siege and all this has led to at least a very, 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 very slim majority saying, let's prepare just in case. Um, And so it's actually quite remarkable because, you know, you'd only had a draft two times previously in this country's history, and that was during war. This is the first peacetime draft. And it barely yes. passes. Yeah. But there's a there's, there's a few things he's doing in 1940, which is kind of easing his way because it it is one of the the biggest political fault facets around. And one one of the pieces, one of the things he's done is he's also done back in 1939. And what I think is really really interesting about Roosevelt, it's it's absolutely clear that sometime before war breaks out, and really after the Munich crisis, he starts to kind of really start to twig that realizes that that that. It's not going to be much longer that the Atlantic is a great barrier that it once was. The, 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 one, the one day in the not too distant future, America could be imperiled by, you know, a, a, a European superpower such as the Nazi state, for example, should it, yeah, should exactly. it come be. So he's, got, yeah. he's starting to think about this. And one of the things that he, he gets passed in April 1939 is the Administrative Reorganization Act. And this is a genius piece of politicking because – He's been haggling about this for, for for a couple of years, and eventually he's just bulldozed. You know, he's bullied and bored people into kind of agreeing to it. And it seems like a minor bit of kind of tedious paperwork, but actually, what it does is it gives him, as president, the authority to move a number of organizations out of the oversight of Congress and into his own personal fiefdom. And so, there's stuff that's a that, that are barriers. Once it comes to warmongering and kind of building up your your um, uh, um, rearming, you can just swiftly just go. Okay, well, I'm not going to put that under the kind of you know the, the the executive office of the president, which is what's created out of this this administrative reorganization act, and and that definitely helps him when it comes to getting the the Vincent Trammell Act rescinded, because it's just stuff he can clear out of the way. The other thing he does, which I think is really really smart, is he gets rid of 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 the Democrats. It's Woodring, isn't it, uh, who is the Secretary of State for War, and Edison, who is the Secretary of State for the Navy, the two biggest, biggest military jobs, were, you know, um, political jobs within the military. And, you know, on his cabinet, for, what, for want of a better phrase, his administration. And he replaces them with Republicans. Henry Stimson, who's a legendary figure, you know, he's in his 70s by this point, but an absolute sort of byword for kind of sort of probity, good sense, long service, Public honesty, yep. all that kind of stuff. He's played a big part in the previous war as well. And Frank Knox at the, at the Navy. So in other words, by the time he's going to the election, he's got two Republicans already in the top spot. So what you're voting for is you're not really voting on a kind of Republican Democratic ticket. You're voting on who you think is going to be best to kind of sail you through the choppy waters that are ahead. It's about as close as you're going to get to the American equivalent of a nationalist government. Or am I say overstating that, John? No, I think it's exactly. What what he's done is he is he has basically brought the uh, especially eastern but internationalist side of the Republican Party into his tent. Um 
And, and so this then combines with the already a pretty potent part of the Democratic Party, the internationalist side, that then kind of co-ops the Southern Democrats who tend to be a bit more isolationist as well. And so it creates at least a majority coalition at this stage. And he, he, he had, of course, Roosevelt had been in the Wilson administration. He'd been assistant secretary of the Navy, and he'd seen how Wilson ultimately had been consumed by the partisanship of the era because he hadn't involved the Republicans quite enough, especially with the whole League of Nations fight. Right. So he was trying to learn from that mistake. And I do think it was a, it was a genius move in that sense. And Knox, too, was a particularly important figure because he was a media maven, you know, a, a, a newspaper owner, so an opinion shaper on that level as well. Um, so right. yeah, I was a I mean, that's yeah, like, smart move. That's like bringing Beaverbrook in. Isn't exactly, it? it is. It's exactly it's like that. that. I mean, the, the thing is, is, is Roosevelt fortunate in the um, in the late thirties that the Republicans, you know, have, have lost a couple of times to him and are sort of in disarray and can't find. An well, but you know, they do. are on the presidential level, but at the at the yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. At the gubernatorial and congressional level, there's a kind of potent anti-New Deal coalition that's really gaining momentum yeah. by the end of the decade. But yeah, the Republicans don't necessarily have a figure who can stand up to him on a national level. But also, the, yeah. you know, the other unprecedented thing besides a peacetime draft, a guy running for a third term. I mean, that, that had been the tradition since George Washington, not a law, but a tradition that you, you mm. would serve your two terms and then you'd bow out. And everybody previously had done that. Uh, Grant flirted with the idea coming back and running again. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt tried to run again, but he, you know, hadn't served two full terms. So, yeah. um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, that also showed you that there was a radically different kind of circumstance in which Americans would even accept. Uh, and, and really the, the idea was, well, Roosevelt is the steady hand. You want to manage this international crisis now. Yeah. So there's an acknowledgement by that point that there is, there is a proper international crisis coming. That's the one way or another uh, America needs a more robust yep. angle on it. Exactly. Um, uh, and, and that that's what's to come. But then, but then, of course... But, but, but hang on a minute, because, because what he's also done, the other condition he's got by, by November 1940, is he's got a situation where the majority of the population are in favour of supporting the Allies. So, in other words, supporting them in rearming. Because how he's pitched it is, is if we can rearm, then we can give, our, you know, give the, the friends of democracy lots of arms, and therefore we won't have to fight because they're doing it for us on our behalf. So we're effectively paying mercenaries in, in one way, right. a very crude way of looking at it, <laughs> to do the job for us. That's what we're doing in Ukraine, for example. It's exactly mm -hmm. the same process. So we're yes. all in favor yeah. of giving giving rockets and, and, and tanks to Ukraine because, you know, they're democratic and, and Putin's Russia is and, and, you know, other democracies. So obviously... Um, but but that's so that we don't have to get involved, and that's exactly yeah. how it's sold. Yeah, so exactly. suddenly, he, by by November nineteen forty, he's got he's got absolute legendary Republicans and press barons in his in his administration, despite being a Democrat. He's mm -hmm. got huge budgets to go through through Congress and being passed, so he's got the money to spend. He's set up the he, he started to rearm in a really big way, which we know, but which he knows by that point more than 50% of the population are in favor of, and substantially more than 50% by November 1940. So it's kind of, you know, the path is pretty clear. But all this has been done because fundamentally, after Munich, he has twigged that, that, that America faces, USA faces an existential threat that needs resolving. And he's got himself into a bit of a pickle because of isolationism and the New Deal and all the rest of it. But the genius of FDR is that in two years, He's totally unpicked it. 
He's unpicked his situation from yes. from the from the fall of 1938 to the fall of 1940. He's the path is then clear, and, and in a way, the election is is a kind of is is like a it's not quite a rubber stamp, but it's not far off it, is it? Uh, he wins a comfortable victory, but it, you know there is opposition to him. Then, Wendell Wilkie is a pretty but, decent candidate. And well, and then 1941 is no easy ride, is it? Though not because at all. You could, you've drafted an army. Strikes galore. Why are they yeah. in the army? They don't know because America still isn't involved, and this thing, this thing hasn't come to pass yet. You've got people coming to the end of their the time they're serving, and then of course, and and the army's having to comb through standards and figure out actually how to actually how to expand and how you run your regiments and how you train your officers and how you integrate the National Guard into the way you're doing things if you do at all, um, uh, whether how how you even run the entire thing and keep people motivated because they're sat around with no war to fight. And things get quite stagnant, don't they, in the, it, within the army in the middle of 1941 that, and sort of look like they're going to unravel, don't they, quite quite, quite dramatically. I mean, to say the least, in fact. And then there are cover-ups and stuff and all that sort of stuff, all that sort of that kind of stuff going on in 1941, aren't there? I mean, it's, it, it's classic it's a, growing It's a things. very odd... Yeah, exactly. It's a very odd year it is. For, the, for the US Army. Yeah, and so you're drafting mainly 19 to 26-year-old single guys for a year, and then they're supposed to be in the reserves after that. Of course, what happens to, to most of them is they're in for the duration plus whatever, and that, that's another thing that's completely different than before and after in American military history, the idea that you're just in it as long as we need you. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know that that is very rare, and it it recognizes this kind of existential crisis. And the nightmare scenario is if Hitler gets his hands on uh, the French fleet, but also the Royal Navy too, and they, you know then what happens? Or if he comes up with a yeah. bomber that can hit the U.S. or whatever. So the big argument by forty one, in a way, is we realize we don't have much stuff, and it's going to take a long time to train this army and to to kick in the immobilization and all that. So the question is, should we husband what we already have for ourselves and figure our allies in Europe are going down regardless, and we hang on to our tanks and planes and all this to defend ourselves, or should we give them to Britain, um, you know, to, to help defend themselves? And of course, famously, the, the actual ambassador to, to Britain, Joe Kennedy, is like, ah, the hell with the British, they're going down, uh, uh, don't yeah. give them this stuff. And he's, he's very out of step, of course, with the Roosevelt administration, which has started to embrace Lend-Lease. And that that's really, I think, the key moment for the United States, um, you know, in, in this whole story. Because once you've gone down the Lend-Lease uh, pathway, you're getting in the war. Um, the neutrality acts are gone. I mean, you've done the cash and carry thing and basically bankrupted Britain that way. Um, you're going to have to to give them stuff if you want them to fight the war. You're going to have to get it there, which then brings up the old thing about the U-boats and the Atlantic and, and that tension. But I should also point out, too, you, you know, you, you have what's thought of as an existential crisis in Asia Pacific, too, uh, because China is central. To, to the entire American wartime uh, or even peacetime vision. Uh, if the balance of power is upset on the Asian continent and the Japanese get their hands on major resources, that's a you know serious game changer there too. Um, so Lend-Lease to China too is part of this dynamic as well. Yeah. yeah, and all the time yeah. you're you're you know you have no forward-looking glass. I mean, you know, you've got to just make the judgments that you're making with the with the information you've got to hand, but you have no idea how the war's going to play out. You have no idea whether China's savable, whether Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader in China, will will come up Trumps or not. 
you have no yeah, idea right. at this point. I mean, you can you can make a very a good educated guess and stuff, and you can you know pour over the data, etc. But but you don't know that you know you're making these massive massive decisions in real time, aren't you? Yeah, and 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 constantly changing too. I mean, the the situation is constantly changing because, of course, 1941. You know, obviously, then the Soviets get into the war, and that that sort of uh, ex- expands the horizon somewhat too. And then you have the back and forth with Britain and the, and the, uh, the road link into China and all that business too, that kind of goes back and forth. Um, you've got the diplomacy, you know, wondering whether, uh, the Japanese are going to go war, war against the Soviet union. Eventually they have their non-aggression pact and, you know, so it, it is, it's, it's just a fascinating thing. In the meantime, the Lend-Lease Act as of March, 1941 has basically made the U S a combatant in almost everything but name. Um, yeah. So it's so, but it, but I think the average person though in this country doesn't quite see it that way, and so Pearl Harbor just seems to come out of the blue to a lot of people. Like, oh, yeah. we're just minding our own business, and the Japanese decide to attack us, and so that's good for the politicians in the sense of like, okay, yeah, get all fired up now, you know. But they this road to war has been much more obscured in that sense. I mean that 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 in itself says something very interesting about how much attention people actually pay to. Um, international relations. How much actually actually people read the papers or follow what's going on, or or, or you know how, how, keep keep abreast. Yeah, of that's stuff, a really good point. It? Yeah, how, how news literate are Americans? I mean, probably more than most human beings throughout history by that point in time. But in relation to really knowing the ins and outs of everything we're talking about here today. I would say not very, uh, but most everybody, the, the thing that I remember, you know, about talking to that generation when, uh, and not even necessarily people who fight in the war, but people who were kids at the time or whatever, uh, who are about the age of our parents or whatever. I mean, they'll say, you know what I remember about, uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, you know, we were doing X, Y, Z, but then everyone asked, where's Pearl Harbor? What's that? Um, and that is <laughs> that's the biggest question usually, and and I think that that's very revealing because they wouldn't have known that, that's that the, the fleet had moved from San Diego to Pearl Harbor the year before as a kind of warning to the Japanese, but as it turns out, makes it more vulnerable. Yeah, God, that's that's fat. I mean, that's that's kind of like no one knowing where the Falklands was in 1982. I don't know where it is or what it is, but absolutely I'm all for it. We've got to <laughs> yeah. kick out the RG. Well, that's it. But that's exactly it. That's exactly the same. How dare it? they? I mean, that's extraordinary. <laughs> Let's reconvene to carry on uh, talking about this um, e- extraordinary moment in American history. Um, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.